Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Thank you, Ellis family, Von Trapp family, the Von Ellis family. <laughs> Revelation chapter 10. It's been a week or two since we've been in this study. We're studying through this last book of the Bible. And uh, here we come to another Just giving a chance. Somebody's tuning up. Coming to another interlude that we've experienced already. There's an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals that we studied, found in chapter seven. And now there's an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And uh, what uh, this indicates to us is that there's only one thing left. There's only one thing left in the plan of God's redemption, and that is what we're in now, before Jesus comes. There is this time that we are in now, where Christ is spreading the gospel to the four corners of the earth, dignifying us by including us in that work, and Christ coming, Christ coming to take his church to himself and judge the rest of the world. That is the only thing left on his calendar. We're living in the interlude. The majority of all of God's plan has already occurred, and we're in this relatively short time before Jesus comes back. It's not a time to be afraid. It's not something to dread if Christ is your Savior. It's something to build confidence. It's a reason to be courageous. And it's a call to commit ourselves afresh to the one thing, the chief thing this world needs, the only news that is truly good. Do you believe it? Have you received it? Are you ready to tell others about it? Let's look at it, chapter 10, a short chapter, just 11 verses, Revelation, the end of your Bible, chapter 10, verse one. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trump, trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. <clears throat> then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, 
Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> A couple of years before I left the place where I previously pastored, a woman came into our congregation, a woman from the Far East. We had a lot of people from the Far East who would come and do post-doctoral research at our medical college there. And a number of those people who had grown up in an atheist country, a country that was absolutely controlling of everything, including uh, the attempt to control the way they thought, a number of those people would come to Christ every year. This woman had, we were not the first evangelical church this woman had been a part of. She had been a part of an evangelical church in New York, a church that some of you know. You've served it in the summers with uh, summer family mission trips, a church that was pastored by one of my students. But there, though she found uh, great fellowship, she made it clear that she did not want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that she could not believe that Jesus was the Christ. She couldn't believe in the gospel. But she loved that church and loved being a part of it, and they recommended that she come to the church where I was pastoring, and, and she did. Week after week, she would sit in the worship service, and she would take careful notes. And she would explain very forthrightly and kindly that she could not accept Christ as her Savior. And when the Lord's Supper would come, like we're going to serve it this morning, and we served it in the, in the pews, then she would, she would be careful to fold her hands and not attempt in any way to take it. It would just pass by her. Never missed a service. She was more faithful in attendance than many of our members, and she continued to come week after week, year after year. She said, and she explained to some who asked her that she couldn't accept Christ as her Lord and Savior because he didn't fit in philosophy. Her husband was the one who pursued, who was pursuing postdoctoral research. She was a philosopher. And she said, Jesus doesn't fit into philosophy. Now, you know, I've been, for some reason, the Lord has brought her to mind over this past week as I've been preparing this message, and, and I've, I've pondered. I never had a chance to ask her before I left that church what she meant by that. What do you mean that, that Christ does not fit within philosophy? But this week, I, I think I've figured it out. I'm going to run it by you. You tell me what you think. I had a philosophy professor uh, I studied a lot of philosophy. I still don't understand it, but I studied a lot of it. 
And I had a philosophy professor once who, who said that the history of philosophy can be explained this way, that all of philosophical ideas, attempts at philosophy can be grouped under one of two heads, that they have to do with control or freedom. That each philosophy is an attempt to say, this is what controls all reality, or this is what should free all of reality. Philosophy is, is simply this, and forgive me if you're a trained philosopher, it's simply, it's, it's, it's this, it seems to me. It's the idea that one thing can explain everything. Philosophy is this, a philosophical theory is one thing can explain everything. It can explain all of reality. And those one things that have been proposed through history are either a principle of control, this one thing this one control explains everything. This effort to control, this pursuit of control explains everything. Or this pursuit of freedom explains everything. I was on vacation recently and I saw a book on the shelf that uh, promised uh, that it was, the, it was the last book that you would need to read on philosophy. And I, I read it in about five minutes because I looked for the idea. He was proposing, he's going to propose something, one thing that will fix everything, one thing that, that explains everything. And whether it fell on the one side of freedom or control, it fell, it fell on the side of, of, of control because he said, this, uh, uh, this mathematical formula explains everything. Well, that was why it only took five minutes because I don't understand anything about math. And uh, I looked at it and I said, if, if everything depends on this, then I have no hope. Control, this mathematical formula explains, this one thing explains everything, or this pursuit of freedom explains everything. There's the history of philosophy. Why does Jesus, why did she say Jesus does not fit within philosophy? Because he doesn't fit within total control or total freedom. Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, Jesus controls everything. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He is the supreme king, but he doesn't control in order to hinder other people's freedoms. He controls in order to grant freedom. He is free of all powers that would hinder him, but he uses that freedom to bring security in our lives. And that's the gospel. Whatever control we have is to be used to bring other people into freedom. Whatever freedom we have is to be used to bring other people into security. That does not fit within any non-Christian philosophical system because in every philosophical system, there is something or someone on the throne. Usually, a self-interest or a corporate interest or, or an ethnic interest or a financial interest, but it's a self-serving interest. That's on the throne. But when Christ is on the throne, freedom comes from being under his control and security comes from his freedom from all external controls. Jesus doesn't fit cleanly. Everyone is looking for that one thing that explains everything. 
That one thing that will give you purpose in life, one thing that will satisfy, one thing that will fulfill, one thing that explains the purpose and flow of history, one thing that will give you hope after history, after death, one thing that will be a kind of heaven to escape whatever your version of hell is. Everything, everyone is looking for that one thing. And that one thing, as we've already heard from Michelle Catalano in the children's message, that one thing, that one person is Jesus Christ. And that good news is his message that is given to us called the gospel. Now, if that is true, there are only two things to do, logical things. And believe it or not, they're outlined in this strange passage. You receive it, and you proclaim it. Verses 1 through 7, he gives us reasons to receive this good news, that Jesus Christ is king, that Jesus Christ restores with the heavenly Father and grants freedom from shame and freedom from fear and freedom from guilt and freedom from death. What are those reasons that we have to receive this gospel, to submit to this freeing gospel? There are reasons from the past, reasons from the present, and reasons from the future. It begins in verse 1. And I say this is a strange passage, but it really only sounds strange to us because we don't know the Old Testament that well. These Jewish believers who had received this, this message, this wouldn't have been so strange to them. They couldn't have understood everything that was being prophesied perhaps, but the imagery would not have been strange. Remember I said, as we study the book of Revelation, we're going to understand more of the Old Testament. So verse 1 of our, oh, the whole chapter of ch- chapter 10 is filled with biblical, Old Testament, biblical allusion. But verse 1 is in particular. And verse 1 says uh, very simply that because of Christ's past pursuit of us, we must receive the gospel. I said, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. You understand more of this than you think you do. What is he saying? He is saying, God is saying, I have come down from heaven. I come down from heaven to be present with my people. That's a mighty angel, comes down from heaven, closes the gap between heaven and earth. He's wrapped in a cloud. The cloud is always in the Old Testament a symbol of the presence of God. So whether you're looking at Jacob's ladder and the angels going up and down, or whether you hear about Jesus coming uh, to earth, it's all the same thing. God is saying, I don't stand up in heaven and shout salvation to you. I have brought it down to you, and, and I've been present with you, and I remain present among you. Here's the first simple principle, the first reason you can know from the past that this is good news. He has come down 
and with his presence brought the good news to you. And then it goes on with a rainbow over his head. You know what that is, that rainbow that appeared after, after, the, uh, after the flood, after the ark in the Old Testament uh, and, and saved the, the Noah and his family. And God put a rainbow in the clouds that every time you see it, you're going to know that I'm not going to destroy the earth again with water, meaning I'm going to preserve the order of the world as an arena in which to do redemption. I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. He comes down from heaven with his presence, he brings salvation. He promises to be faithful, and his face will shine like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. Jesus Christ is symbolized in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the sun. Beams of healing and light and warmth from heaven, his legs like pillars of fire, the pillar in the Old Testament. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, of fire by night, symbolizing the presence of God to protect his people and to fight for them. So here's the simple first point. Why should you receive the gospel? Why should you hope in it when it seems like everything is hope is lost, when it's, it's, it's just not worth going forward? Why should you keep on? Because God has always proven that he is fighting for your redemption. He has an unbroken, unfailing record of the past. You say, he's let me down lately. I don't understand what's going on in my life. He must be against me. Do you know that he's been fighting for you before you were even created, before the world was created? If Christ is your Savior, he has been fighting and clawing to get to you, to redeem you long before this world was made and long before you were born. You may not understand what you're going through right now, but it certainly does not mean. It, means a, it could mean a million things, but it does not mean that God is against you. He's proven that in his past. Well, now maybe you're kind of getting the hang of interpreting this, so we'll go on to the next one, and that's in verses 2 to 3, 5 to 7. He is with you in the present. He had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, remember, we've talked about a scroll we talked about a long scroll, and we said that scroll is the record of God's redemptive plan. So why is it little? Because we're almost at the end of it. He's unrolled most of the scroll because he's fulfilled most of it. The prophets have come. The judges have come. Jesus Christ has come. He's died on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. There's only a little bit left. That is for him to keep gathering souls to himself, and then Jesus will come. So I have this little scroll, a little part of his plan. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. What is he doing in the present? He is fulfilling that last bit that is left. He is gathering his elect to himself. He's calling them with a clear voice like a lioness calls her cubs. And he, he does it over land and sea. He sets one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. That means he spans all that land, neither land nor sea nor political powers. Nothing is going to prevent his gospel from going to the ends of the earth. At our a denomination's general assembly one night up here on this platform, we gathered around a team of people who were going literally to the four corners of the earth to take the gospel. They're going to places where it's not, they're not supposed to go. 
They're going to places that it's illegal for them to be there. That's why we only pray for first names for a lot of people we support. You may say, don't these people have last names? We don't pray for their, we only pray for their first names because they're in dangerous places. They're not supposed to be there. But Jesus doesn't know any boundaries. The gospel doesn't know any boundaries. This is what Jesus is doing in the present. He is fighting to redeem, to bring people to himself. And he's going to continue to do that into the future. Verse 4, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Don't overthink it. This is the point. The seven thunders, that's the voice of God. And God says, I'm telling you a lot about what's happened. I'm telling you a lot about what's happening now. And I'm telling you a lot about what's going to happen in the future. But I'm not going to tell you everything because you can't handle it all. And not into all of eternity will you ever be able to understand it all. Because I will forever be infinite and you will be forever finite. So there's no, there's no use of you writing down what you don't understand and what nobody else is going to understand. I am writing down. I'm having you write down what the people need to know. And this is what you need to know about the future. Jesus wins. You know, there was a study done at UC San Diego not long ago by two men named Nicholas Christenfield and Jonathan Levitt. And they wanted to know, I don't know who pays for studies like this, but preachers are glad for them as illustrations. But they, 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 somebody funded a study to ask if learning the way a story ends spoils the way you read the story. They took 12 sources. They took 12 books, works of literature from Agatha Christie to John Updike, and they gave them to 30 different participants. And within some of the manuscripts of those 30 participants, they put spoiler paragraphs. They told them who done it or how the, the novel was going to end. And what they found was that the people who knew how the novel was going to end enjoyed reading the novel better. They processed it better. They, they stuck with it longer. And their conclusion was that when you know how it turns out, it's cognitively easier to process what you're reading. And you can go deeper in your understanding of the story. Isn't that beautiful? That's what you've been given, the book of Revelation. You know how it's going to end. So there's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to lack courage. There's no reason to pull back from living full tilt for Christ. You know that he has always fought for you. He is fighting to redeem right now, and he's going to win in the future. If you haven't received that good news of the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, then today is the day to do it. Yes, it'll put you on a life, on the path of a hard life, at times, it'll be persecution. There'll be difficulty. It'll be expensive in terms of time and energy and money, but it will be well worth it because there's only a little time left before the end. Second thing, if that is the good news, if that is the one thing that explains everything, then there's, there's something you, you and I have to, got to do with it. We've, we've got to give it away. We've got to proclaim it. it. Sounds so simple. 
but we don't do it. Verses eight to 11, here's the call. Verse eight, it is to proclaim this good news everywhere. Go into all the world, he says. Here he says, same thing, go, go, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Take this message that Christ is the one who when you submit to his control, he brings true freedom. Take this scroll, this good news, that he's in charge of all of history, that he frees you from guilt and shame and sin, that he'll free you from death, he'll take you to life eternal. Go, take that message, and Jesus made it clear, go into all the world. The world, according to Scripture, is not just geographical. It's not just going overseas, though it certainly includes that. It's not just going to the next city, the next campus, the next door neighbor. It does include that. There is a mandate going to all the world to go to your neighbor, to go to your colleague at work, to go to the person sitting next to you. But the world also includes sociology. Go to all kinds of people. It includes vocation. Go into every vocation. Go into every aspect of life where you live, work, and play and share this good news. Preach it everywhere. Proclaim it at all times, verses 9 and 10. I went to the angel, told him to give me that little scroll. He said, take and eat it, and it'll make your stomach bitter, but in in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Take this plan to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. Take it and ingest it. That's That's what we're demonstrating in the Lord's Supper today. We are, we are participating in a divine drama by saying, Lord Jesus, I'm not just observing. I am walking forward. I am taking the gospel. I am ingesting it. I want it to be a part of me. I want it to take control of everything I am and everything I do, even if it involves suffering, even if it involves exclusion from friendship groups at school. Even if it means my friends and neighbors and family exclude me, shun me, call me names. Even if it costs me money, costs me my job, costs me the things I take security and delight in, I will proclaim this message all the time. Even if I suffer, I will proclaim this message all the time because you have proven to me that you love me. You've proven to me that you want me. You've proven to me that this is the only way. So nothing is going to turn me off of this path. We proclaim it to every person, every area. We proclaim it at all times, and we proclaim it to all peoples. Look at verse, look first at uh, verse seven and then 11. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. And verse 11, 
you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What is the mystery? The mystery is defined for us in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 3, the first um, uh, six, uh, first 11 verses, Ephesians chapter, chapter 3, Paul says, this is the mystery. This is the mystery that the Gentiles will be heirs with us. That was a radical message of the day. Because the Jews, by their ethnicity, believed that they were the only recipients of salvation. They were the majority culture of the church of the day. And the Gentiles were being told that they were the, going to be co-heirs, equal citizens with others in the church. And the church was then to demonstrate objectively the reconciling power of the gospel by Jew and Gentile worshiping together. Multiple ethnicities in one place calling each other brother and sister and father and mother and learning to bend and accept and learn each other's cultures in order to present a united congregation to the world. That's still the goal. We've already seen it in Revelation 7, 9, that at the great day, those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship together forever. And the way the culture is convinced today that this gospel that we say is the best news of all news, that this is the one thing that explains everything, is for them to see that objectively played out, not only in our congregational worship, but in our daily living. As they observe us doing that which is contrary to every other norm of society, where we are moving toward people who are not like us. We're moving toward people who have disabilities, and we want them in our fellowship, and we want them in our congregation, and we're moving toward people who are different sociologically from us, people who are different economically from us, people who are different ethnically from us. And the world is forced to scratch its head and say, I, you know, we understand diversity for diversity's sake, but we don't understand this, this family thing where people move toward each other and love each other genuinely and consider one another as more important than themselves. That is a mystery. There's no mystery to the gospel if people can understand it. But if people look at it and say, this doesn't fit any norm, it's counterintuitive to everything, then they're forced to ask, what is that good news? My friend that I mentioned earlier, just a few weeks before I left Augusta, we were studying Revelation also, and she came up and she said, uh, I want you to know, Pastor, today I committed my life to Jesus Christ. I was speechless. I, did, I, I just asked, what happened? And she said, she was kind of in a hurry, but she said, I figured out that Jesus doesn't fit within philosophy. 
He can't fit within philosophy. Philosophy has to fit within him. Philosophy only makes sense with Christ at the center. She made that conclusion after we studied the throne of Christ. When she realized that, yes, he's sitting on the throne and controls all things, but people are not oppressed by that control. They are liberated, and they are singing with all their might, to you belongs praise and glory and power. We thank you for setting us free. It all clicked for her. One of the reasons she was attracted One of the reasons she continued to to hang in there and to listen to the gospel message, even after she was disillusioned, she wanted to leave her country, which was total control for America, where she thought that there would be total freedom. But what she found in America was total freedom that was absolutely out of control. Disillusioned as she was, She found something, she smelled something, suspected that there was something different about Christians and she kept hanging around them and one thing she noticed that was different was that they accepted her, they welcomed her. She had come from a place where she she thought that ethnically she was the center of the world. She came to a place where many people rejected her because she didn't look the same. But in the church, she found something different. She found a Christ who was at the center and in control, who brought true freedom and liberty. And she found a community in which people used their influence to bring freedom to others. And they used their freedom to bring security to others like herself. One of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen was that Yaru moved from the back of the sanctuary to the front right here. And every week when the Lord's Supper was served, she took it like she was dying of starvation. Not because she believed there was something magical in it, but because she had taken Christ and she was ingesting him in gratitude and wanting him to take all of her, knowing that what lay ahead of her back in her home country was not going to be an easy road, but it was going to be worth it because he had disclosed to her that he alone was the way and the truth and the life.